The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body. Welcome to episode six of Optometry Talks, seven things I wish I'd known before I started practice. I'm Paula Katalinik, Professional Services Manager at Optometry New South Wales ACT, and today I'm joined by our CEO, Andrew McKinnon, as well as our Communications and Member Liaison, Audrey Malloy. Welcome, Andrew and Audrey. Morning, Paula. Hi, Paula. Good morning. For a newly graduated optometrist, it's a pretty steep learning curve. In a previous episode of Optometry Talks, the seven crucial steps to starting out, we've already covered the basics of getting started, which includes things like how to register with APRA, setting up with Medicare provider numbers, and so on. And don't forget, we also have a downloadable resource on our website called Starting Out, which contains all the same information. And we recently published another episode called The First 90 Days, which deals with the kind of things they just don't teach you in uni, but commonly crop up during the early months of practice. But even if you're all set up as a professional optometrist, and you've been in practice for that crucial first 90 days, there are still some pitfalls to avoid, especially in this digital age of social media. I'll start with you, Audrey. For our first tip in this episode, can you tell us a little about your social media responsibilities as an optometrist? Yes, of course. Look, social media is an umbrella term now for a whole range of communications, from Facebook pages used to market your business, to chat forums and and so on. So I'll break it down into a few separate areas. The first of these is personal conduct. And I think most people know this now, but your prospective employer will look you up on social media. And if they see a bunch of party pictures or worse, they may think twice about employing you. So Andrew, what are your considerations here? Um, Look, one of the first things to consider are your professional obligations. You're a professional, uh, certain things go with that. Um, The Optometry Board of Australia has a code of conduct and that says, in professional life, optometrists must display a standard of behaviour that warrants the trust and respect of the community. Another consideration is your employment agreement as they often contain clauses preventing employees from bringing the company they work for into disrepute and you could actually be dismissed for it. There is precedent in Australian law, so you do need to be very careful. Hmm. The OBA Code of Conduct also talks about professional boundaries being integral to a good optometrist-patient relationship. Audrey, any comments on that? Yeah, well, look, um, here's an example. So you receive a request from a patient to be your friend on Facebook. What should you do? Should you request? Um, our, Our professional indemnity insurers, BMS, Their recommendation is against online relationships of a personal nature with current or former patients. So, and that's because boundary violations can occur easily online and lead to disciplinary actions. The best thing to do in this scenario is to email or have a conversation with the patient the next time they're in the office. You could say words to the effect of, I make it a policy not to share my personal information with patients in order to keep the relationship professional. If you prefer, we can use email, or our patient portal, or you can follow my professional business page. Another thing that's not a bad idea is to have maybe two profiles on Facebook, have your personal or even use an alias, and then have your practice Facebook page. But just be aware that people will still find you on your personal page, and so any pictures that you put up there should should show you in a professional light. 
Good point, Audrey. Andrew, the Code of Conduct also advises avoiding the expression of your personal beliefs to your patients in a way that is likely to cause them distress. Have you seen that happen? Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes, we have. Um, Even things that you might regard as innocuous or um, commonplace can cause problems because you just don't know how people will react. So, for example... Um, you can be guaranteed that uh, not every patient is going to share your views on things like politics or hunting, abortion, religion, live sheep, exports, whatever you want and whatever you want to call it. Um, often things that are seemingly innocuous can engender a reaction from a patient. So do be very cautious about the sorts of topics you bring up in a consultation. Thanks. De- Defamation is an, uh, another area where social media can get you into trouble. Audrey, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. So defamation can occur in two ways. It can be against a patient or against a colleague. So let's take Jenny, who's an optometrist, who goes home after work um, in a mood and posts on her Facebook page how Mr. So-and-so was an overbearing, demanding patient and that she booked him in with someone else for his follow-up visit. And she, she even puts his name on. So defamatory words are defined by law as having a tendency to lower a person's estimation in the eyes of right-thinking members of society, calculated to injure the reputation and exposing a person to a more than trivial degree of ridicule. So any of those three definitions can be used to, to, to define defamatory words. So here's another one where a colleague can be defamed. And this, this crops up often when we get second opinions. So. A 35-year-old man presents with symptoms of blurry vision and trouble with night vision. He says he's seen two other optometrists, but no one could find any problems with his eyes. You dilate the pupils and you find early posterior subcapsular changes and mild pigmentary changes to the mid-peripheral retina. You suspect retinitis pigmentosa and you tell him you're referring him for further testing. He asks you why the other optometrist didn't dilate his pupils and he seems angry that they weren't able to find anything wrong. What should you say in this situation? So to avoid any sort of um, suit against you for defamation suit, you must always avoid any statement that damages the reputation of another causing loss or injury. Andrew, do you have anything to add here? Have you seen this? Yeah, um, just to take a bit further what Audrey was just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems is when you're examining somebody after someone else has had a look, you don't know what they saw. You don't know what the patient was like. You don't know the conditions at the time. For example, we're now sitting in an extremely smoky Sydney, um, which is causing all sorts of eye irritations. Mm-hmm. Six months down the track, if someone comes in and complains that there's an issue, you don't know whether those atmospherics were having an impact on the person or not. You simply don't know what the patient saw or what the optometrist saw at the time. So never criticise. You just don't know what was going on. You can say, I, I simply don't know what the other optometrist would have seen at the time, but what I have found today is X. So confine it to what you found. Don't speculate on what a colleague found. And that way, As Audrey said, you're more likely to stay out of trouble. Good point. I fully agree. Andrew, our second tip today is around advertising. I know you're not a big fan of Facebook yourself, but there are certain things that should not appear on Facebook business page when it comes to marketing your practice. Yes. What are they? Hmm. 
if I knew what Facebook was, I'd answer that question. <laughs> um, look, advertising laws don't differ regardless of the media. Uh, so social media is exactly the same as Sydney Morning Herald. So from an optometrist's point of view, let's just run through a couple of things. Firstly and most importantly, you can't use testimonials from patients to promote your practice. Um, now, it is different between pages you control, so your own Facebook page or your own website, and things which things like Google reviews or product review, uh, where you have no control over what's said. If on your own Facebook page, for example, somebody jumps on and says, you're the best optometrist in Sydney, that's a problem. And because you're the administrator of that page, you can take it down and you need to take it down. But if the same comment appears on Google or on product review, you have no capacity to take it down and the board does not expect that that will be the case. They, they understand that that's, that happens on occasions. Yes, it's a really interesting area because it's your optometry skills that cannot be promoted through testimonials. Someone cannot say, I saw Joe Bloggs with my eye test and he was amazing, but there's nothing to stop them talking positively, positively about how helpful your staff were or what a nice selection of frames you stuck. So it's not like you have to delete every positive comment off your Facebook page. You just have to look through and make sure there's nothing that reflects on your professional services as an optometrist. Andrew, when it comes to advertising, it's not just testimonials that optometrists need to be careful about, is it? No, no, Paul, it's not. Um, one of the other big ones, uh, or two of the other big ones that are related, are the use of the doctor title and the term specialist. So, and, and that applies whether it's on your own website or a Facebook page, business cards, wherever your name appears, where you have control, you can't use wording that implies that you are a medical practitioner or a specialist. So there's no problem using the doctor prefix as long as it's clear that you're an optometrist rather than a doctor. So Dr. Audrey Malloy, followed by optometrist in a legible size font, is perfectly fine. Yeah, look, that, that's right. Um, the other one, the other word that causes us grief is specialist. Um, the word specialist has a particular meaning in the law which governs our registration. So even if you, inverted commas, specialise in a particular area of optometry like myopia control, um, it's not a term that you can use. We'd suggest using words like have a particular interest in or have undertaken further training in paediatrics or have years of experience in children's vision. There are ways to convey uh, a, a level of skill without using the, that terrible word, specialist. Speaking of paediatrics and children's vision, there are a number of issues that can come up when testing kids and teenagers. Tip number three today concerns the testing of a child where the parents are divorced. Audrey, can you tell us about some of these issues? Yes, of course. But, um, there are rare situations, which we'll get into in a few minutes, um, but a really common scenario is the child of the divorced parents. So practices see this all the time. You see a child for an eye exam and they're accompanied by one parent. You find out that they are, say, hyperopic and you prescribe glasses. And issues can arise if the other parent is not present and later discovers the child needs to wear glasses and doesn't agree. Uh, there may also be issues with the payment of the account. So it's, it's a really good idea to inquire at the time of booking any child who will be the person responsible for the payment of the account and that person's name should be recorded on the file and if there, if there are any out-of-pocket fees that should be discussed in advance. 
If you find that the child needs glasses or treatment, it's really helpful to provide a written report that can be emailed or given as two hard copies, so one is available to the other parent. And it's also really helpful to provide two copies of handout materials to the parent in attendance, explaining why prescription spectacles or other treatments are necessary, so they can share with the other parent. But as an optometrist, you're not under any legal obligations to provide information about the child to another person claiming to be the other parent. Look, Audrey, absolutely right. Um, my advice is never try and act as a go-between between divorced parents. It's probably the most dangerous place on earth. Um, your obligation is to the child and the parent who presents with them at the consultation. If the other parent wants information, you tell them to go and talk to their former spouse. Um, if, as a tangent, you have concerns about a child's welfare, report it and we'll talk to that talk about that in a moment um, but also if the child attends with different parents at different times so could be that mum brings the child in one day and dad brings the child in another day both parents need to know that the child's file will be available to both parties because both parties have attended with the child again just important to make sure that everyone's clear so that there are no misunderstandings about who gets what that's really good advice. Thanks, Andrew. Tip number four today also relates to testing children. Andrew, what about the more sinister scenarios where you suspect the child may have been abused physically or otherwise? Mm, really good point. Um, the, the first thing I'd say to you is that if you're seeing more than a very small handful of children, two or three a year, um, and that's probably going to be the case, particularly with uh, the myopia control options we now have, make sure you have a working with children check. Um, this ensures that there is no problem if, for example, um, a parent brings the child into the room but then has to go out and take a phone call or, or deal with another sibling. Um, it's, my, my advice is if you are unsure, get it. There's no downside to having it. Uh, there could be a downside to not having it if a problem arises. But if you never see children, you don't need it. Or if, if a parent is always with you, you don't need it. So. Child abuse. Um, look, this can be something that either is conveyed to you by the child or you observe. And an example we use when we're talking with, uh, with some of our colleagues. Little child comes in very shy, um, comes in with dad. Um, when you're examining, you notice there's bruising on her arm. Left eye might be a little swollen. Um, she's very uncomfortable when dad scolds her. Um, and when you talk to dad about the, the swollen eye, he becomes evasive. So you'll start, your, your antenna's going up about whether there's child abuse or not. So, okay, so what do you do in that circumstance? So Optometry Australia has a guideline on the reporting of the abuse of children. Um, we recommend that optometrists report all cases of suspected child abuse when that suspicion is based on reasonable grounds um, reasonable grounds not defined, that's something you'll have to judge. Um, remembering that child abuse can be physical, can be sexual, emotional or psychological. Um, can also be neglect. So if you've got a child coming in who evidently um, is not washed, the clothes are dirty, whatever it happens to be, if you have that concern, you should report it. Um, again, we recommend that it should occur, reporting should occur regardless of whether or not the child is a patient. So if the parent comes in and you observe this in 
a child that is in the waiting room, you should still report it. Um, and it should happen whether or not you are mandated to report in a particular state. So child abuse reporting is governed by state law. Um, in New South Wales and the ACT, with some variations, uh, there are mandatory reporting requirements for optometrists and other health practitioners, um, certainly under the age of 16, but you can report without consent um, anyone who is under the age of 18 because at law they are a minor. And um, look, it's worth bearing in mind that 30 to 40% of physically abused kids have ocular complications, such as subconjunctival hemorrhages, detached retinas, or even cataracts. So that's another thing to put your you put your radar on if you if you start seeing those sort of um, signs in children, it might alert you to the to the uh, abuse that could be going on. That's a scary statistic, isn't it? Mm. So, Andrew, what do you actually have to do then? Okay, so if you suspect child abuse, uh, you need to make a report to the relevant authority wherever you are, whichever state you're in, within twenty four hours. Now, as I said, in New South Wales and the ACT, optometrists have a mandatory obligation to report children who are under 16, but also under 18, if you consider that that's appropriate. Um, I'll give you the numbers, but you can easily look them up online. Uh, in New South Wales, it's Community Services and Child Protection, one. Uh, in Canberra, there's a much longer number, which I won't give you, but if you Google Child Protection Canberra, it will come up. It's the Child, uh, Child and Young People's Protection Unit in Canberra. Um, look, there are a very large number of cases reported, so don't ever feel bad that you're, you're being an outlier. Um, in New South Wales, there's about 300,000 cases reported annually, of which nearly 20% are substantiated. So if you think about the number, that's 60,000 cases are substantiated a year. That's a terrifying number. So abuse does happen. It is not a figment of somebody's imagination. Um, and make sure, of course, that in your clinical record, you've got a, a, a written report of what went on, why you reported, who you called, etc. Thanks, Andrew. For tip number five, can you tell us what happens if you are testing a minor without a parent present? Hmm. Okay. This is going to be a, a what-if answer. So a minor at law is anyone under the age of 18 years. However, the grey area in this case is where someone is between the ages of about 15 and 17. So if I can just quickly explain that. If a person's under 15, the law with rare exceptions accepts that they're a child and can't consent to their own health care. If they're over 17, again with some rare exceptions, the law accepts that they do have the capacity to consent. The grey area is in the middle, um, so between 15 and 17, where the law hasn't yet decided whether you're a child or whether you're an adult. So again, example that we use when we're talking to various people. So a 16-year-old male presents alone for a routine eye examination. So far, so good. Um, you conduct ophthalmoscopy and you discover an asymptomatic retinal detachment. Um, you talk to the, the patient about it, but like most 16-year-old boys, his communication is limited to grunting at the appropriate time. Um, so he, he doesn't seem to be particularly worried about it, probably because it's a word of more than three, three letters. Um, you're not sure that he understands the nature and potential complications if it's left untreated. So what do you do? Okay. Um, firstly, without being silly, make sure your language is clear and simple. Don't use, if you said asymptomatic retinal detachment, the kid would look at you like you'd grown a second head. So don't use that. Use simple words. Explain it clearly and simply. 
Ask questions to make sure that you're being understood. Tell the patient what it is that you want to do um, in terms of treatment or whether you're going to refer. Explain to them that you'll be following up treatment or referral with them in 48 hours and clearly explain that if they don't adhere to what you have recommended, you will be calling their parent or guardian. Andrew, is the, um, the law surrounding minors just New South Wales specific or is that something no. that's likely to... Law, law will be the same for minors uh, right across the country. Okay, thanks for that. Tip number six in today's episode is about how to manage sexual innuendo and inappropriate advances. What advice do you give younger optometrists about this, Audrey? Well, times have changed for optometrists. So years ago when I first started practicing, most of, a lot of optometrists were older males. And so what may once have appeared mildly flattering or embarrassing to an older male optometrist is now a real issue as our profession becomes increasingly dominated by young women. So here's, here's an example again that we, we use with, um, when dealing with our colleagues. So you're a 27-year-old female optometrist and your patient is a 50-year-old male who you're fitting with contact lenses. And whilst teaching him contact lens handling techniques, he strokes your leg. It's possibly accidental, but you're not sure. So what do you do? The first thing I'd say is be on alert immediately. It may have been an accident, but if it's an accident, it's, if it's not an accident, it's likely to be repeated. So if the behavior appears to be deliberate or what seemed accidental in the first place is repeated or any suggestive comments are made, use a firm but professional tone immediately to say something like, that's not appropriate. The other thing I'd highly recommend is to ask a colleague to sit in the room during the consult. So whether you've had a previous experience with a particular patient or if it's a new patient and they've just done something that you felt was appropriate, you can ask a colleague to sit in for training as long as the patient gives consent. And I haven't come across a patient yet that has refused consent for someone to sit in for training. So that's a really good technique to use. Um, do diarise the incident. And the main thing is, and this is a really common reaction, we talk to colleagues who do this all the time, don't laugh it off. Don't just tolerate it and laugh it off and say, oh God, guess, guess what happened to me today? It's not acceptable and they shouldn't get the message that it is acceptable. But what about the patient that asks you out on a date and you like the idea? Andrew, you've helped members over the years with this kind of thing. How is it best managed? Yes, if you could see my head, you would see it dropping. <laughs> um, look, it is, it is fraught with danger for the practitioner. So if you do want to pursue a relationship, sever the professional relationship. And you need to allow a little bit of time between the two so don't sever the professional relationship at 4 p.m and go out to dinner at 7. Um, be very very careful about engaging at all with a patient we uh, very quick example is we've just had one where uh, an optometrist was found to have acted inappropriately even though there was no contact between the patient they didn't kiss cuddle do anything else um, they simply went to dinner and then later on went to see a play. That was it, completely platonic. A complaint was made and the optometrist was found to have acted inappropriately. So the definition of inappropriate practice um, in this context can be extremely broad, so you need to be very, very careful. So practically, how would you sever the relationship? Um, you have to say to the patient, look, um, I'd love to go out with you, but it's a requirement that... Uh, 
I cannot be your treating practitioner at the time or in, in a time in close proximity. Um, I'm happy to hand you to my colleague and uh, look, I'll, I'll happily uh, make contact with you in a month and see if dinner is still an option, something along those lines. Have you had uh, members where they've actually dated someone that's still, they're still their patient and, you know, yes. seeing them in a professional capacity while they're actually dating them? I yes, that's... and that's diabolically bad because if, as it often does, the relationship ends, you're, there, you're then terribly badly exposed to a complaint. And so what are the consequences? What's the worst case scenario with that, that, with that, that type of situation? Uh, look, the worst case scenario I've seen is a suspension of registration. Oh, right, okay. Uh, because it was, it was regarded as an abuse of the, the patient-professional relationship and it was regarded as a serious, serious consequence in that one. Uh, look, it doesn't usually get to that stage. It's usually a reprimand. Uh, but even so, you don't want to go through a process of having to front the board to discuss this sort of thing. Um, it is far easier to get all your ducks lined up before and make sure that you don't run foul of the, the um, patient professional problems. So just to turn it on its head, what if you already have a boyfriend um, outside practice, nothing to do with your practice, and he wants to have his eyes tested, wants to come and see you and have, have, have his eyes tested? What, what happens then? Uh, you refer you're referring to someone else. You, you don't see him. You don't see them. And, and what about if it's your child? Uh, different. Different. So if you are, and this sounds really odd as we sit here in almost the year 2020, um, if you are in an established relationship and you said boyfriend, so I immediately thought short term, but mm -hmm. if it was a partner, even an unmarried partner of long standing, then that's okay. Uh, you're allowed to examine your family and uh, your children, your spouse, etc. You may not be able to bill for them, that's a different question. Mm -hmm. um, but you are allowed to do that. But um, where the relationship is not long-term, not established, it creates a different set of problems. So you refer to your colleagues? You refer to your colleagues, sure. mm. yeah. Okay. Good advice. Um, our seventh tip today is about managing conflict or how to deal with the angry patient. So Andrew, this is something we get a lot of calls about from members seeking advice. What do you say to them? Angry patients are going to cause you grief if you don't handle them well. And Audrey's really good at this. She'll talk about this in a sec. But look, um, a, a typical compilation of scenarios that we see. Um, so patient storms into the practice, um, shouting at the front desk staff, um, says he's been to see another optometrist because he couldn't wear the glasses that you prescribed. Um, the other optometrist uses that dreadful word wrong um, and orders new lenses. Patient's still not all that excited with the lenses um, and wants a full refund of the initial cost. Um, could be also other scenarios. Ortho K is a very common one that we get. Um, patients find that after a period of time the lenses are uncomfortable, didn't work, whatever it happens to be. So in that circumstance, a few things that uh, people should be aware of. Um, don't go, don't discuss things via email if it is at all possible. Um, email is not a method of resolving disputes. It's, it's a way of creating a paper trial for lawyers. Um, most disputes are retail related. Very rare that it, comparatively very rare that it's, uh, it's professional. Um, statistics show that 70% of patients will stick with you if you handle their complaint well. So even if they come in really angry, if you deal with them well, they will become lifelong patients. Um, and 95% so of those will really, they'll stay with you long term. Um, 
And there are things that you can do to minimise this risk. Um, patient information material is really important. Um, telling people in advance, and, and the classic one that we use is um, if somebody is a first-time um, multifocal user, make sure you tell them about what is going to happen, that you know, steps may swim and that they'll get peripheral distortion, that sort of thing. Um, and you tell them that most people take six weeks to get used to it. So when they adapt in two, they think they're great. Um, however, if you don't tell them and they come back in two weeks and say, I can't adapt, then you're at fault. And if you say, oh, well, it takes six weeks, then you're making excuses. So turn it around and be proactive with it. Um, worst things to do is argue, particularly at the front desk. Um, defend yourself. Don't defend yourself. Just accept um, what's coming at you. Don't shout at them. Um, and don't suggest that it's the patient's fault that they can't wear whatever it is that you've prescribed for them. Um, continuing on that, um, again, don't imply blame like, oh, well, you're the only person who's ever complained. Um, don't refuse to rectify the problem. Patients have a lot of legal remedies, so refusing to rectify a problem is just opening you up to further action. Um, hard reality is that a refund is almost always the best way to get this patient out of your practice and out of your life. Um, if you go to a tribunal, the, the odds are, and we've seen this many, many times, unless the patient is patently unreasonable, you will probably lose because tribunals look at this from a purely retail environment. You have, the patient has been given a product which is not suitable for their purpose. They don't care about the ins and outs of, of lens design and that sort of thing. It is. You've sold them something, they can't use it. Therefore, at law, you have a duty to give them a refund. So be very careful about refusing refunds. Um, however, um, if, if the patient is just absolutely unreasonable, um, we had one recently where a patient alleged all sorts of things against the optometrist and the optometrist didn't even see them. Um, we don't know where the patient was coming from, but we have our suspicions. Um, but in that sort of circumstance, no, don't offer money. Stand your ground and, again, we'll advise you what to do in those circumstances. Good advice. Audrey, you've had a lot of experience with helping staff over uh, with this over the years. Is there a go-to approach that an optometrist can take when it comes to dealing with an angry patient? Uh, yes, um, Paula, look, I totally agree with Andrew's point earlier that email is rarely a good idea when it comes to conflict resolution. There's just too much lost once you take the body language and the, the tone, of, tone of voice out of the equation. So one communication model suggests that over 50% of communication happens via body language. So this is only possible if you have the patient right in front of you. They can see how sympathetic you are, they can see your facial expressions and your gestures, and they can read that you are genuinely trying to help them. Um, and another 40% is communicated by your tone. So the tone of voice and the tone of language that you use. So that only leaves 10% that, that of the actual uh, of communication that is uh, communicated through words. So when you send an email, 90% of the communication is actually lost and it's really, really hard to resolve conflict. And a lot of optometrists say, oh no, but I, I, I want to send an email because now there's a record of what I said and what they said and it's all there. It's not a good idea and it usually doesn't, doesn't help at all. So oh, I would say always respond promptly to a complaint, even if you're busy. 
if you get an email, you can, it, it is appropriate to email back just to say, I've received your message, I'm finishing my list and I will get back to you before, before the, the end of the business day or um, first thing tomorrow morning. Within 24 hours is, is reasonable. If, if the same day is best, but if it's late in the evening and you just haven't got the, the time or the, the bandwidth for it, the next morning is perfectly acceptable. A quick email to say you'll be in touch shortly is appropriate, but trying to get into any detail in email is not. I've used various tools over the years to teach optometrists and front office staff how to deal with conflict, and I've found this one called ASSIST to be one of the best go-to tools around for dealing with angry or disappointed patients. So to answer your question, Paula, yes, this is a fantastic go-to tool. I suggest that people use this, that they actually write it out on a, on a little card and they tape it near the phones of all around the practice so that someone rings up, they're angry, they're disappointed, they're upset, you go straight to, to you know, to the A, to the first part of the, of the acronym. So this, this um, tool is called ASSIST and it uses the six letters in the word ASSIST, A-S-S-I-S-T. The first word is, the first letter A is for acknowledge and this is the first step to acknowledge what's happened. <clears throat> and that may be just that they've been waiting for over an hour. So you say, I can see you've been waiting for a very long time. Acknowledging what the issue is, is, is actually really important in resolving the, the conflict. The next one is an obvious one, and it's an apology. Sorry, um, I'm so sorry I couldn't get to you sooner. I had a squeeze in, I had an emergency that I had to see, and I'm really, really sorry that you've had to wait for this length of time. Some optometrists are afraid to use the word sorry in case it confers some sort of professional neglect or whatever. It's always a good idea to use sorry and legal statistics show that in legal cases where someone actually files a suit against an optometrist, the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, the reason that pushes them over the edge is the fact that no one apologised. No one said sorry. So saying sorry is a really, really good idea. It does not get you into trouble. It does the exact opposite. So we're on to our third letter in the acronym now, which is another S. And this is the step that almost everybody skips. Even well-meaning people will say, oh, you've been waiting for an hour, I couldn't get to you sooner. Let's get you through now and get you sorted. You're gonna, I'm gonna get, get you out of here before you, you know, your car runs out of parking, whatever. And they skip the most important step, which is story. The patient has got to be given an opportunity to get their story off the chest. Um, otherwise, resolution cannot occur. So it's actually a really good tip in any relationship. If you're, if you're not given a chance to tell your story about why you're upset about something, you're not actually going to recover properly from it. So they have to have that chance um, and they actually need to get more emotional, more upset or angry or disappointed in this step before they get better. It's like a wave. You come in in the middle of the wave and they actually have to go up to the higher point of the wave before they come back down into the, um, in, in where it falls away and, the, and all the emotion falls away. So they must be given a chance to tell their story and it's a really good idea to write it down. So sit them in front of you and take notes, type up notes. If you're sitting in a waiting area, bring a clipboard and sit down and take notes. If they're on the phone and you, could, you can't come in, let them hear you tapping away and say, just bear with me for a second, I'm just writing down all of this down. And the fact that there's a record somewhere, anywhere, even just in the hard drive of a computer is really reassuring for the person that someone has heard their version of the story. So that's the story. And everyone skips that. The next step is I for inquire. How can we fix this? What would you like to see happen? And it's really important in this step to listen to the patient and what they would like to see happen. Uh, maybe they don't want to come in at 8.30 in the morning and be your first patient to avoid a wait. 
maybe they want they, they just want to be seen on time the next time they come in um, and at their lunch time or whatever so really listen to what they're looking for rather than assume the answer um, the next step is S and that's for a solution so that's where you actually work out what you're going to do you might say how about I book you in first thing at 8.30 tomorrow a.m. so there's no wait if that's the that, if that's the solution that you worked out between you so that's S and the last one which is T which stands for tell or travel and to my mind is really more like deliver is where you actually uh, book the patient in so you might walk the patient up to the front desk and say to your receptionist please book Mrs. Jones in at 8.30 tomorrow a.m. before any other patient so that she knows that she will not be waiting and you deliver the solution. And that rounds it off. And that's it. So that those six steps will get you out of a lot of trouble. Um, we will create a quick guide for this that we will have available to download from the website that you can simply print out and stick near your phone and use it any time you get one of these patients. And you can find that if you do a good job in resolving an issue, these patients actually become your best advocates for your services. And Andrew's alluded to this earlier. If you simply deliver what they were expecting in the first place, they probably won't tell many people. But if something goes wrong and you really listen and help put it right, they're likely to not only remain at your practice, but also to recommend others. Great, so look out for that quick guide. It's a really useful, practical tool. Thanks, Audrey. The other really important piece of advice here, of course, is the minute there's any trouble or a complaint, give us a call. We're here to support you and have decades of experience doing it. So there we have it. The seven things I wish I'd known before I started practice. This is invaluable advice at the start of any optometrist's career. And I'd like to thank Audrey and Andrew for sharing their perspective and wisdom with us today. Thanks guys. Most welcome. If you need any further help at any stage, don't be a stranger. The team at Optometry New South Wales ACT is here to support you and we're just a phone call or email away. You can call us directly here on 02-9712-2199 or call the Optometry Australia National Office. And that concludes episode six of Optometry Talks. We'll be coming back to the subject of clinical record keeping and its importance for both audit as well as negligence claims. So stay tuned to further episodes in 2020. This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT. 